All right, to begin, I want you to think back when you were a kid for a moment. Did you have a favorite fairy tale? Maybe it was Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, The Three Little Pigs, Princess and the Pea, Beauty and the Beast. You probably had one that you liked. Most people do. Now, in our house right now, uh, instead of reading bedtime stories, the girls keep asking me to make up green monster stories. Now, you're probably wondering, what's a green monster story? Well, in these stories that I make up, the green monster has green skin, yellow teeth, really bad breath, scraggly hair, and he sneaks into the house when somebody leaves the screen door open. But, but luckily, the dad in the story is an exceptional monster catcher, and he wrestles this monster to the ground and banishes him to the great outdoors where he belongs. The girls love these very uncreative and simple monster stories, and all of you probably enjoy a good fairy tale. Now, why do we love them? I think we like them because they're pretty simplistic. If you look at them, they're a simple plot with an endearing character that faces a problem or a villain and then either becomes the hero or is rescued by the hero. And then most importantly, what happens at the end? Everybody lives happily ever after. Something in there, that just grabs us, right? We want to live happily ever after. We want all of our problems to go away, to be fixed. We want to be fixed, and um, we just want to live happily ever after. Now, unfortunately, I think you know and I know that life doesn't work that way. It's just not that simplistic. Instead, we have ups and downs, peaks and valleys, advances and setbacks, good decisions, and at times, bad decisions that we make. That's how life works, and that's where we're at here, continuing this Old Testament postcard series, and we're looking at um, Old Testament characters, figuring out how they apply to our life. And today, I'm going to talk about Hezekiah. A couple weeks ago, we had the opportunity of hearing Lori Hensel talk about Deborah. Ben's asked a couple of us to kind of share during this time, and so today you get to hear me. So hopefully it works out for you. Um, <laughs> but today we're going to talk about Hezekiah. He was an Old Testament king. Um, some of you might say, I know I've heard the name. Who was he? Um, he's considered a hero and a reformer. Not on par, but close to like David and Solomon, you have Hezekiah. Now, on the surface, his life kind of seems like a fairy tale. He was a, a man used by God in a powerful way, and he lived seemingly happily ever after. And we're tempted to think that his life was a lot different than yours and mine. Um, however, by digging in a little deeper today, we're going to find that there's probably some things that are similar to his life compared to ours today. Um, with ups and downs and peaks and valleys. Now remember, our goals for this whole series that Ben outlined when we started was first we want to be informed and encouraged, but not just that, we actually want to be challenged and changed. We don't want our life to stay, say the stay, stay the same. We want to grow in our conduct and in our, in our lives. And we're going to do that today by these three things I hope to cover today. First, we want to take a bird's eye view of Hezekiah. Who was he? What did he do? Second, we're going to be encouraged by just looking at how his life relates to ours and how we can take application. And then second, we're going to look at how Hezekiah fits into God's overarching plan for humankind. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to be here today. Thank you that we live in a country um, where we can come and serve you. Thank you for our veterans, uh, those currently serving, that, that do everything they can and give of themselves. Um, but most importantly, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives inside of us 
that works on us. And I just uh, invite you here on the message, on me, on, the, on all of us listening, that we can come away transformed and changed for your glory. Amen. All right, who was Hezekiah? Hezekiah was the 13th king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. Israel was the northern kingdom. And his grandfather was the high priest, Zechariah. His father was Ahaz. Maybe you've heard of Ahaz before. Ahaz was a wicked king that uh, even sacrificed some of his own children to pagan gods. In addition to that, um, Ahaz nailed the temple door shut so that people couldn't go in there and worship God. Um, Those are just a couple of Ahaz's lowlights, as you might say. And this was the example that uh, Hezekiah grew up watching. His dad, King, King Ahaz, not serving God in the least bit. And then in 715 B.C., Hezekiah takes over as king when he's only 25 years old. Now, the question comes in, what does he do as as king? Surprisingly, in the first few months on the job, he completely initiates reform in the nation of Judah. He opens up the temple doors, and here are a few of the things that he does. He calls all the priests and Levites to purify the temple. He removes all the idols from the land. He reinstated the proper worship services, how God had outlined. He rededicated the temple. He even tried to reunite the people of Judah and Israel for the Passover celebration. And during this first Passover celebration that happened shortly after he became king, um, they had a seven-day festival where they celebrate God. And after the end of the seven days, the people said, you know what, we've had so much fun celebrating God, we're going to come and stay another seven days. So 14-day-long festival. You know, now that's a party celebrating what God has done. So this huge kind of revival and reform that he initiates. He does a complete 180 from where his father had gone to where he's gone. And I'm left asking, why? Why why does he, like, decide, I'm going to do something different? I'm going to seek God when my dad didn't. And, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us. It just kind of leaves us to wonder, why did Hezekiah do things different than his father? And and so I've wondered, maybe it was his grandfather, um, Zechariah, the high priest. Maybe there was something there that relationship with his grandfather caused him to say, you know what, when I'm king and take over from my dad, I'm going to serve God. Or maybe it was the prayers of his mother. We don't know. But for some reason, he said, you know what, I don't want my life to be like my dad's. And I think, for me anyway, I think we can take encouragement from that, that we're not bound to the things that happened before. Our parents, the people that come before us, the bad decisions that are made, we're not bound to that. And maybe that's an encouragement to you today. For me, it's it's an encouragement because um, my biological father, uh, he was uh, he's still alive today, but he he's got a lot of problems in life. Um, when I was four, one of the few memories I have of him um, was the police came to our house and hauled him away for abusing my mom. And uh, I've seen him maybe a handful of times. And since that time, he's virtually made no effort to involve himself in my life in the lives of my sisters, and now in his 12 grandchildren's lives. And along that way, he's made a lifetime of just really bad choices. So I'm thankful that my life, like Hezekiah's, has taken a different path than my father's. And I'm left to wonder why. I I really don't know. Maybe it was my grandfather. I had a a great-grandfather that was a constant example of what it means to be a Christ follower. Um, Perhaps it was the prayers of my mother. Uh, she prayed a lot for me, especially when I was a teenager. And uh, she prayed for my uh, sisters. Um, I don't know what it was, um, but what is clear is we're not bound to the mistakes of those that come before us. 
And the great thing, I think the truth we can take away from this is we serve a redemptive God who specializes in the business of restoration. So that, I think, is the first thing we can apply from the life of Hezekiah, and that's good news. Now, getting back to Hezekiah, he initiates this great reform in Judah. And then the Bible's kind of silent. We don't know what happens. But it tells us that in the, the 14th year of his reign, he faces a major challenge. The king of Assyria decides to have an assault and to come and attack the nation of Judah. Now, up in what we've heard up in, to this point, you would think, all right, Hezekiah, this man of faith, this great reformer, he's going to st- stand strong in this trial. But just like you and I sometimes, he doesn't have faith. He succumbs to fear in this trial, and he decides, you know what, I better bargain with this king that's going to attack me. Um, Second Kings 18 tells us about this, and it'll be up on the screen here, or you can follow along in your Bible or Bible app. But this is what Second Kings 18 tells us when he's faced with this trial. It says, King Hezekiah sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. I will pay whatever tribute money you demand if you will only withdraw. The king of Assyria then demanded a settlement of more than 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. To gather this amount, King Hezekiah used all the silver stored in the temple of the Lord and in the palace treasury. Hezekiah even stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's temple and from the doorposts he had overlaid with gold, and he gave it all to the Assyrian king. Fear instead of faith. Has that ever happened to you? Often, our first instinct when faced with a problem is to allow fear or pride or greed or hate, something else to govern how we think and how we respond instead of trusting in God. Now, how do you think this bargain worked out for Hezekiah? The king said, hey, thanks for all this gold and silver, but guess what? I'm coming anyway, right? That's usually what happens. And so, um, and, and, and to add insult to injury, um, the king of Assyria also sends this letter to Hezekiah. So after he's given him all the gold and silver, King then sends in this letter and says, "Hey, you're pretty much a fool for trusting that God's gonna, your God's gonna save you, and uh, and trusting and just not that I'm not gonna come take take you over, and boasting that no other country's gods have saved them from this Assyrian king's army." Now, by taking matters into his own hands, Hezekiah bargains. Still in the same hopeless situation. All right, what does he do? All right, he's kind of at the end of his rope. And then there's this little turn of events in the Bible. Um, In this hopeless situation, Hezekiah does something. He makes a choice that is perhaps his finest finest hour. He takes this letter from the Assyrian king that says he takes it into the temple of God. Now, I picture him being there all alone, being at night, him knowing that, you know what, this Assyrian army is going to attack his nation any day, any moment. I'm sure he's still completely fearful, no idea how to save his country, his people, himself. Completely like, all right, God, I've taken this into my own hands, and it's I'm, nothing's happened. And the Bible tells us that he lays out this letter before God on the altar and just lays it out. And there in the, in the temple, he asks God for God's intervention. And through prayer, he asks God, can you help me? And he concludes the prayer with these words in Second Kings. Hezekiah said, Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. 
Hezekiah finally does what he should have done in the first place, right? He finally surrenders it all to God and calls out for help. Now, what happens this time? That's what will be up on the screen here. What happens next, I find almost hard to believe, really. 2 Kings 19, verse 35 states this, That night, so after Hezekiah had prayed, laid out this letter before God on the altar, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there. 185,000 dead enemy soldiers. It almost doesn't seem real. Like That's a lot of people. Um, when we allow God to fight our battles, there's potential for the miraculous to happen. However, so often, we like Hezekiah, I think, we first want to do what? Take the matter in our hands. God, I'll fix this. I'll solve it. Don't worry. I, I'm going to do it. And then finally we say, okay, God, I, I probably should have kind of come and talked to you first about this whole thing. Um, and, and you know what? When we get to our end of our rope, and I think sometimes God allows us to get to our end of our rope so that when we finally say, God, I surrender. And, and you know, when we're at that end of our rope, I think it's the truth I think we can take away from it is sometimes God shows up mo in the most powerful ways when we feel the most powerless in situations. That he is most powerful when we are most powerless. Paul says in the New Testament, when I am weak, that's actually when I'm strong because that's when we rely on God. So you're starting to see some ups and downs in Hezekiah's life. This great reformer and king, you're starting to see how, you know, in some ways he was just a human, just like you and I, right? He had ups and downs and peaks and valleys. Now, what happens next in his life? Shortly after this great victory over the Assyrians, he becomes really ill. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Get your house in order. I'd say this is this next challenge he's facing. How do we respond when we face death? Now, the Bible mentions nothing about him being fearful. It seems that he learned from his challenge with the Assyrian king. He trusts God. In fact, it says he just prays out in faith, God, I still have work to do here on earth. Will you give me 15, or will you give me more years? And God miraculously says, yeah, I'll give you 15 more years to live. And there's this neat little story that we're not going to get into today where God actually allows, has the sundial move back 10 steps to verify this miraculous healing. And, and he just prays out to God and God just shows up. You know, this isn't a mountaintop experience for him when he had this incredible bad news and, and he responded in faith. So we've just had a super high, right? And we've overcome the Assyrian enemy. We got sick, kind of a low all of a sudden, we have this uh, miraculous healing. There's another mountaintop experience. Life isn't happily ever after. It's kind of this up and down. And at this time, the Bible goes on to say that Hezekiah is sick. The Babylonian king, now which is different than the Assyrian king, kind of hears about Hezekiah being sick. And he sends some ambassadors with some gifts to the nation of Judah. I guess a get-well gift from one king to the other or something. And uh, Hezekiah welcomes these ambassadors into his palace. So Hezekiah, I'm sure, is feeling pretty good about, you know, this whole thing. Wow, you know, the, the king of Babylon is, is, is coming and, and wanting me to know that he, he's thinking about me. And he was flattered pretty much by their gifts and presents. And Hezekiah makes a choice. He decides, you know what, I'm going to show off a little bit here. I'm going to proudly just kind of tell them what I all have. 
The Bible states it this way. There was nothing in all his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. He kind of said, look at what I am. Look at what I have. Um, And guess what? The prophet Isaiah comes back to him and says, hey, due to your pride, because you thought what you have is because of you and not because of God, all that you just showed these ambassadors, the nation of Babylon is going to come take that from you after you die which happened a couple decades later during um, the King Zedekiah's reign. So he has this mountaintop experience only to come crashing back down because, because of pride. Now, does that ever happen to you? It happens to me, right? We work on an area. Maybe it's greed, pride, fear, hate, lust. Whatever it is, we through time are just saying, God, I need some work in this area. And over time, by God's grace, we find kind of victory and we overcome in this area. And we think, you know what, I got this, it's going pretty good. And all of a sudden, this thing over here that we weren't even really thinking about, we're like, where did that character defect show up? That happens to us, right? Um, it happens all the time. And that's Hezekiah's story. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll say, you know what, that happens to me. Now, the question comes in, why? Why does that happen? You notice I'm asking that question a lot because that's a question I ask myself why do we have this kind of, I work on this and all of a sudden this comes up? Can't God just fix me? Just get it over with? And, and I believe God knows and understands our limitations. He knows we aren't capable of fixing every broken element of our lives at the same time. Psalm 103.14 says it this way, and it will be up here on the screen. For he knows, meaning God, how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. God's grace helps us overcome an area of brokenness. And it's like he takes light and shines it on another area that he wants to transform, restore, reform. He wants to work on all areas of our life. And this process is kind of cyclical. God just keeps working with us. You know, this process of slow, steady change reminds me of when I was a teacher. And I used to teach um, expository writing to fifth grade students. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a lot of fun. And when I started my teaching career, it wasn't a lot of fun. Um, There's a lot of components to good writing. You know, you have things like correct grammar, rich vocabulary, smooth transitions, natural flow, organized structure, appropriate syntax, supporting details, and the list could go on, right? And when I started first teaching, you know, hey, we're going to get this down, we're going to go, I tried to teach it all at the same time, right? Here we go. We're going to fix it. And it was hard. and, and, you know, you probably remember from when you were when you were in school, teacher would say, here's your writing assignment, do your rough draft. And you know, I had to write in pencil and skip lines and, you know, do all this stuff. And you turn this in. And so I'd, I'd do these assignments, and kids would turn in their, their uh, rough drafts to me. And, and I'd get out my trusty red pen, and I would start circling every misspelled word, you know, and I would, you know, draw arrows here and cross this out. And, you know, I'd fix this and fix that. You know, when I'd get done, the thing would just be all red. You know, and I, and I would be pretty proud of it, you know, and, and, and I would go to, uh, you know, little Johnny and I, I'd hand him his paperback and say, Johnny, I've made some corrections. You have got some things to work on. And I'd hand it back to Johnny and say, okay, now we need to write our final draft, right? Now we don't skip lines and it's got to be your neat copy and all that. You remember that? And guess what Johnny would do? He would take that paper and he would write exactly what he wrote the first time and ignore all of my red marks. It was absolutely just maddening, frustrating, um, and, and I hated it until I realized, you know what, I think if I want to be effective, 
I have to ignore some of their mistakes. And that's really hard for any teacher to do, to ignore some mistakes. So instead, I changed up my whole strategy, and I said, all right, we're going to focus on one skill, one skill at a time. All right, we're going to focus on transitions. And now let's, you know, here's how we use transitions. Here's a good transition. Here's when you use a transition. I'd say, now I'm going to give you ample opportunity to practice that. And so we'd practice it. And when they'd turn their stuff in, I would ignore that they misspelled everything. Or it wasn't organized at all. And I would just, you know what, I'd say, you know what, we're focusing on transition. And when we were done with transitions, I'd say, all right, now we're going to go on rich vocabulary. We would do a little lesson on that. And I would ignore the things we hadn't taught yet. And I'd focus one thing at a time. And guess what? After doing a few things, you'd have to go back and brush up on transitions again because we forgot about how to use those things. And guess what? After doing that for a while, guess what happened? I began to be like teaching writing. And my students took more ownership in the process. And guess what? They became better writers. And I think that's how God works with us a little bit. He kind of, in his, in his patience and graciousness, realizes, you know what? I'm going to work on just enough. That that's what we're going to focus on. But I'm not going to overwhelm you with everything that you need to work on. That's the God we serve. And um, that's the great thing that we, the, the, the great news that we have. Now, the next why question I have is why? Why, why even go through? That sounds like hard work, right? All this character change and transformation and, and praying about these things. Why even go through all this? Um, well, there, the Bible gives us an answer. It's in 1 John 2.6. And here's what 1 John 2.6 says. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. You see, God wants us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's why we go through all this change. Now, Jesus states it this way in John fifteen twelve, He says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a long way to go on that one. Um, and that's a constant kind of process. You see, his desire is that his kingdom breaks into our lives we live like Jesus for God's glory. Now, to wrap this whole thing up, let's examine how Hezekiah fits into God's overarching kind of plan for humankind. Um, so in review, you know, remember, Hezekiah was a godly king. We found out not a perfect king. And he was used by God to draw his people to him. Now, it wasn't God's plan for Hezekiah to be the ultimate, pain, the ultimate solution for all the pain, hurt, injustice, and sinfulness in the world and the hearts of people. In fact, if you continue reading the story of Hezekiah, you'll find out that his son, who took over as king after him, him was Manasseh. And Manasseh was perhaps one of the most wicked kings of Judah. He kind of just, everything that Hezekiah had accomplished and reformed, he basically said, we're going to go back to how it was. And he reinstated idol worship, um, child sacrifice, all these great things that Hezekiah had accomplished, were gone, the next generation. Um, so obviously Hezekiah was not the ultimate solution for all the pain and hurt and injustice in the world. Um, you see, Hezekiah was just a part of God's plan. God's ultimate solution actually would come 700 years later in the form of another king. Now who was this king? James Allen Francis describes this king this way. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. 
He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. Jesus is God's plan to rescue the world from all the pain and hurt and suffering. Hezekiah was just a small part of it. So is this Jesus? Is he king in your life? He can be. Jesus simply asks that we surrender the controls of our life to him. And you know what? We don't, we don't just do that one time. That's a continual process. And being a Christ follower is a continual surrendering of our life and allowing his kingdom to come into ours. This has been God's plan all along, to bring his kingdom to this earth through his son, Jesus Christ, You see, he doesn't want us to live in his kingdom. He wants his kingdom to live in us. Now, have you ever reflected, and maybe you're sitting in the car someday or you're doing something, you say, you know what, is this all life is? It seems like life should be more than this. It seems like I'm missing something. That question plagues me from time to time. You know what, I think the answer is yes, life should be more than this. And there is more, and that more is Jesus. And it's relationship with him. And it's that relationship that brings his kingdom into our life, that brings power and love and hope and joy. Our daily, our lives are daily reminders of the overlapping of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. You know, living this way isn't a fairy tale. You know, there isn't any happily ever after button. Instead, living this way, we have ups and downs, peaks and valleys, advances and setbacks, good decisions, and at times, really dumb ones. You know, daily we're reminded that we are living as already, but not yet people. Daily we're reminded that we need more of Jesus. You know, and the story of Hezekiah reminds us that life isn't a fairy tale. We need to continue pursuing God. And so I'll leave you with this question. Is your life moving closer to Jesus? Today, you have an opportunity to take another step. During worship or ministry time, you have the opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe you need to surrender completely for the very first time. You need to totally give up the controls of your life and say, God, I'm all yours. Or maybe, like some of us in here, we need to surrender an area of our life for the 1,000th time. Like Hezekiah in the temple, we need to take that area, that letter, and lay it out before God and just say, God, I trust you. I trust you to do what only you can do. And that is true heart change, genuine transformation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you most of all for Jesus. Thank you that you're real, that your power lives in our lives. Holy Spirit, we just invite you now to come 
to work on our hearts, to continue to transform us. Thank you for your patience and grace and mercy that you show every day and that is new every day. Father God, we love you. And during this time of offering now, we just want to give back a little token that just says thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do.